Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello, Mobituaries listeners. As you know, this podcast is about my favorite dead people and things. But for this episode, we wanted to, well, liven things up. So we decided to tape in front of a live audience. What follows is a compilation of two appearances I made in Asbury Park, New Jersey and Fairfield, Connecticut. There was plenty of fun and games. Plus, I interviewed legendary New York Times obituary writer Margalit Fox. Just a few times, you're going to hear the audience reacting to images displayed on a screen, but I'm pretty sure you'll get the joke. So, without further ado, from CBS Sunday Morning and Simon & Schuster, I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Mobituaries. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Mo Rocca. Hello, good evening. Thank you very much. I am so happy to be here in Asbury Park for the first Mobituaries Live. I inherited my love of obituaries from my father. My father always said that the obits was his favorite section of the newspaper. And I think it's because my father had a real sense of the romance of life. And I'm not being cute when I say that, romance of life and obits. I think he appreciated the sort of the dramatic sweep of an obituary, seeing a person's life, the highs and lows, kind of reduced to a few inches of of newsprint. It's sort of like a movie trailer for an Oscar-winning biopic, right? Which is usually much better than the full movie. But kind of the highs, the lows, it's so dramatic. And to to read a good one, you're like, you're really swept away. For instance, W.J. Sidus, not a famous person, but boy, what a story. Ex-prodigy and obscure clerk. The all-important first line. William James Sidus, who as a child prodigy completed seven years of public schooling in six months and astounded Harvard University professors with his original theories on the fourth dimension, died today, a lonely, obscure clerk, one of whose last jobs was operating an adding machine at $15 a week. (sighs) I mean, you just know that the kid who plays young Sheldon is going to win an Oscar playing that role. (laughs) One of the things that I kind of like to do is... Imagine certain people with very eventful lives, what the first line of their obituary will be. Um, Someone like, say, Bill Cosby. I'm not saying I like him. His life is eventful. (laughs) So 
So this is the line I came up with, what would be sort of the first line that could pack it all in. Bill Cosby, the Philadelphia-born legendary stand-up comedian who broke barriers when he became the first black actor to star in an American television drama before going on to star in his own blockbuster eponymous sitcom, but whose legacy was eclipsed by a torrent of accusations of drug-facilitated sex crimes and whose 2018 conviction of aggravated indecent assault sent him to prison where he lived out his days in disgrace, died today. Now, when I was in the third grade, I loved diagramming sentences. I don't know how the heck you could diagram that sentence. Actually, I do. I want you all to see it. This is where Twitter is so great. I went on Twitter and I said, I have a sentence diagramming emergency. Can someone help me? And a guy named Matthew Brown helped me out. So any good obituary writer, and we have a great one coming out later, will tell you that someone's obituary is not about their death, but really about their life, which is what I'm interested in. I've been a correspondent on CBS Sunday Morning for about 13 years now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I've done probably over 100 different profiles, and I love doing them of all different types of people. One sobering thing that I've learned from this whole experience is that basically everybody will be forgotten. You probably knew that already. My colleague at CBS Sunday Morning and my friend, Rita Braver, was profiling Nora Ephron, the writer, producer, and the wit, in 2002. Yeah, and um, profiling her, she had... What's that? We're not going to forget her. Nora Ephron? Well, okay, but let me tell you something then. I don't want to either. I mean, but, and I'm not going to. But Rita Braver was, was profiling her about a musical that she'd written called Imaginary Friends, about the vicious feud between the great writers and intellectuals, Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy. And Rita at one point asked Nora Ephron, she said, you know, how do you want to be remembered? And Nora Ephron said to her, remembered? Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy were the biggest names in America at one point, and they've been dead for 10 or 12 years now, and no one knows their names. And I kind of thought, well, yeah, right, whatever. But when we were doing this podcast, I wanted in the Audrey Hepburn episode to put in a line from Nora Ephron. She had talked to me about Audrey Hepburn at one point. And on our staff, all the people under the age of 30 had no idea who Nora Ephron was. I'm telling you, and these are really, look, I don't know who Cardi B is, so I'm not judging. But like, like, so it it was sobering. These are really whip smart with kids because they're very young, but it tells you something. So this next segment kind of comes out of that. It's sort of a public service. People are dying all the time, which means that the list of dead people keeps growing, which means that it's harder and harder to keep track of people and it's easier to just confuse different people from the past. So I call this segment disambiguation. You know, it's important to point out that Audrey Hepburn was not related in any way to Katherine Hepburn. Not related at all. I am forever confusing Tennessee frontiersman Davy Crockett with... Kentucky pioneer Daniel Boone. Don't ask me the difference between a frontiersman and a pioneer. I don't know, but I know they're different. The reason they're always confused is that Fess Parker played both of them. 
in a coonskin cap. And only Davy Crockett wore a coonskin cap. And now I can't tell which one is which. <laughs> Chef Paul Prudhomme is not all together now. Oh my God, I just got a whole audience to say Dom DeLuise in unison. They have nothing to do with each other. They went to the same hat shop, I guess. Paul Prudhomme was a chef. Dom DeLuise was an actor who cooked. Gore Vidal was a stylist of prose. Vidal Sassoon was a stylist of hair. Neither had anything to do with Sasson jeans. This is Joan of Arc, the sainted French heroine of the Hundred Years' War. This is Joan Van Ark, <laughs> who starred on Knots Landing for 14 years. And lest I get sued, I want to be really clear. Joan Van Ark is alive. At least she was right before the show started. Anyways, I want to be really clear. Okay. Oh, Molly Pitcher is one of the 12 service areas on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> Molly Hatchet is not. John Paul Jones is the father of the American Navy. John Paul Jones was the bassist for Led Zeppelin. John Paul Jones is a contestant on The Bachelorette. They're all named John Paul Jones. And finally, this is so important because people are constantly getting it confused. The Norman Conquest was in 1066 when England fell to the Normans, which should not be confused with Norman fell. <laughs> Mr. Roper, Stanley. Okay. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. And now... I am pleased to introduce this evening's special guest. I have a special guest for the first Mobituaries Live. Margalit Fox has written over 1,400 obituaries for the New York Times. Margalit is also the author of three books. Her new, newest release, excuse me, should win an award for best title. It's called Conan Doyle for the Defense, The True Story of a Sensational British Murder, A Quest for Justice, and the world's most famous detective writer, ladies and gentlemen, Marguerite Fox. So, Marguerite, I said that you're retired from the New York Times, but in a sense, you 
you'll never be retired because your byline is going to appear for a good long while because... When I retired very, very early, I should point out, in June 2018, I left behind in the can... Uh, I left behind, well, a case of scotch under my desk, but we're not going to talk about that, which I gave to my colleagues because they'll need it more than I. But I left behind probably between 70 and 80 advance obits, obits that are written for the undead. When they run is in the lap of the gods, but they, I've been averaging maybe one byline a month, and so it may well be the case, because of course I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, that my bylines will outlive me. Now, are you allowed to tell us who any of the advanced obits are before they've been released? No, and then I really would have to kill you all, and you all seem like lovely people, so I, I think I won't do that. And, and is it true that the first obit you wrote was an advanced obit? The very first advanced obit I wrote was in 1995 for a very major American scholar and thinker, I can't tell you more than that, and blast him. Not only is he still alive, but he's still fiendishly productive. So every time he came oh out with a gosh. new book, I had to go into the computer and update his obit. Oh, is it, is it David McCullough? You can't. Mo, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> so I know that it used to be that the obituary section was where you were put out to pasture, but that was long ago, right? T- t- tell me about w- how you even got to be an obituary writer. Well, the child has not been born, and uh, if anyone has such a child, please raise your hands and stand up and testify because I want to hear it, but I'm firmly convinced the child has not been born who comes home from primary school clutching a theme that says, when I grow up, I want to be an obituary writer. That's never going to happen. And so journalists, including me, stumble into it quite by accident. And as Mo said, until maybe 20 years ago, the obit department on any American newspaper was Siberia. It was where they put you if they didn't like you but didn't quite have enough dirt on you to fire you outright. And it was where they put you as the last stop before you needed an obit yourself. But... Why? I mean, it seems so satisfying. And I think I've heard you say that it's the most purely kind of narrative writing. You're writing someone's life from womb to tomb. Absolutely. And the dirty little secret is it's the best beat in American journalism. I want to ask about the paid obits. Should we be paying attention to the paid obits? Uh, Yes and no. But the first thing, and now I'm going to uh, invoke a pop culture reference. I feel like Burt Lancaster talking to... um, Tony Curtis in Sweet Smell of Success, come here, I want to chastise you. First thing you must learn is not to call them obits. <gasps> oh, I'm so sorry. It, you did a very bad thing. Um, they are paid death notices, so they are completely unjournalistic in that if you read them, basically everyone who died was a saint. He died doing what he loved, and he died surrounded by his adoring family. Could I... <laughs> So could I have a paid obit, excuse me, a paid death notice for myself that says that I was the president of Gambia? I suspect that would be fact-checked. The capital is Banjul, by the way. But 
seriously, the paid notices are invaluable to reporters, and we scan that page. I have to do it with a magnifying glass now, but we scan it like a 49er prospector panning for gold because sometimes, surprisingly often actually, families don't quite know what they have. Tell us about Alan Abel. Alan Abel gave my colleagues and me many a sleepless night. Alan Abel, who died last year at the age of 94, was a professional hoaxer. And he's... (laughs) He started early enough that one could at least make a kind of scanty living at it. Well, woe betide the New York Times, in 1980, we ran his obituary. And he knew exactly the kind of fact-checking that the Times would be doing, and he anticipated their every move. He had a woman weeping, playing the part of the grieving widow because we're applied to call the family, so she answered the phone. He created a fake funeral parlor with its own business directory information listing and had a fake undertaker who answered the phone when the reporter called to do that bit of fact-checking. He was a step ahead of us every inch of the way, and so the day after we ran his news obit in 1980, we had to run a retraction of that obit. (laughs) Amazing. Now, he lived as, you know, America's self-appointed court jester. He lived into his 90s, and so this was one of the people on my dance card about whom I needed to do an advance obit. You can imagine how nervous that made me feel. And I wrote it. I did every possible bit of checking that I could at the time. And then, because I didn't want to deal with it when he actually did die, I retired. But (laughs) he happened to die maybe six months after I retired. But had I still been on staff then and had it fallen to me to, as we say, put a top on the story, get the where and the when and the all-important confirmation that Mr. Smith is really dead, I had this fantasy that when The Undertaker's back was turned... I would take out a hat pin, <laughs> lean over the coffin, and... <laughs> we have to decide who is playing you in the movie, because this has to be a movie. I'm more concerned with the placement of obits. Marguerite knows that I still have not gotten over the fact that Richard Rogers was above the fold on the front page of the New York Times, but Oscar Hammerstein was below the fold. And this is the, the long history of the New York Times anti-lyrics bias. It's just unacceptable. It's, we've got to put a stop to it. But as you well know, these judgments are never absolute. They're only relative, so of course it depended on who and what else was on page one on those respective days. Okay. Um, Judy Garland was below the fold. That really bothered me. Don't look at me, Mo. It's not on me. Uh, When Judy Garland died, I was seven years old. Okay. Well, all right. Dear Abby and her sister Ann Landers were both below the fold. Do you think they did that intentionally so that they would, you know, because sibling rivalry, they wanted to make sure they were treated the same? No, they did it to hurt me because they were both mine. Oh, is that, oh, they were? Okay. Oh, I'm no. Read them. Um, dear Abby and Ann Landers, as you all know, the two dueling advice columnists were identical twins, and they had uh, great love for each other, but also tremendous rivalry, as can happen. So, born obviously on the same day, 
married on the same day in a double ceremony. They had a double wedding? Yes. Um, I love double weddings. Yeah. I remember when, remember, does anybody remember it was really bad? The Brady girls get married. They had like a special. And I always thought they should like continue with it. And when they got to the end of their lives, they could have the Brady girls get buried. It has real possibilities, but the natural constituency audience will probably be themselves buried by then, so who's going to watch it? Right. Good point. I need to work on the marketing of this. To go back to Anne and Abby. Yes. um, Anne Landers died first, and in fact, that was my first page one. So my husband uh, got the paper and said, you know, you're on page one. I said, what the hell are you talking about? And indeed, that was... Uh, Ann Landers, and then Dear Abby died about, uh, quite a number of years later, fairly recently. But that must have been a thrill, your first page one. It's a big it, deal. It was a lot of fun. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hi, Studio Mo budding in here for a second. Turns out that Marguerite's favorite obits weren't the ones she wrote for the movers and shakers, but for who she calls history's backstage players, the unsung heroes and heroines who changed our world in large, small, and almost always delightful ways. To honor them, we played a little game with Marguerite. That involved my producer, Harry Wood, dressing up as the Grim Reaper and bringing props on stage to, well, you'll figure it out. Consider this as This Is Your Life and Obit's Margalit Fox. You're scaring me. Harry, who is the subject of Margalit's first Obit flashback? Stuffing. It is Ruth Seams, right? That is Ruth Seams. And why ordinarily would we, we be interested in Thank doing you, the news obit? <laughs> Thank you, Death. <laughs> why would the New York Times be interested in doing the news obit of a relatively unknown home economist from Indiana? who worked in quiet anonymity for General Foods for 30 years. Indeed, Ruth Seams invented a product whose patent had the thrilling name of dehydrated bread product or something like that, stovetop stuffing, and bless her heart, she died in November. So we were able to run the story Wednesday of Thanksgiving week. Perfect timing. And as you wrote in that 2005 obit, today Kraft Foods, which now owns the brand, sells about 60 million boxes of it at Thanksgiving. 
And I have to tell you, I am a fan. I love, I'm staying. That's what they used to say in the ad, right? Stovetop, I'm staying. Would she have gotten an obit had she died in July? Absolutely, but we were so giddy with the excitement. There are only two times I've run around the newsroom in high excitement, shrieking to anyone I knew about the subject of the next day's obit, and this Ruth Seams was one of them. Harry, who is the subject of Margalit's next obit flashback? It's Don Featherstone, inventor of the pink flamingo. Thanks, Harry. <laughs> As Mo said, I've done well over 1,400 obits, and this is one of the ones that made me the most deliriously happy. And this is what I mean by the unsung backstage players. We all know about pink plastic lawn flamingos and every bit. Ba- all right. Let's be honest here, it doesn't leave this room. What happens in Asbury Park stays in Asbury Park. Hands up if your family had one on their lawn. Okay, we have a few. I wish we had had Yeah, we didn't, but my parents were communists. Um, (laughs) They had red flamingos. (laughs) But, um, so it was a phenomenon that literally defined the landscape of mid-century America. And it comes from somewhere. It came from one guy with the perfect name of Don Featherstone, who was a sculptor for a plastics company in Massachusetts. And in 1957, he decided, let's make this fun pink summery product. It was put on the market the next year and took off like a pink flamingo. Harry? Bring out the next subject of Margalit's obit flashback. That's right, you're applauding Andre Kassan, the inventor of the Etch-a-Sketch. Thank you, Harry. <laughs> I can't believe I just tickled the Grim Reaper. That was really fun. It may buy me an extra few years, or it may have the reverse effect. Etch-a-Sketch was invented by a French engineer named André Cassan. Again, invented totally by accident. He was working in a factory that made something else. There were metal filings in the air. They not- he noticed the metal filings stuck to a plastic decal for a light switch cover he was installing. And if you moved your finger or a pencil point on the underside, you got a pattern in those metal filings, and that was all it took. You had a great line in this. I, I just, you, you write so beautifully. First marketed in 1960, the toy with its rectangular gray screen, red frame, and two white knobs quickly became one of the brightest stars in the constellation of mid-century childhood amusements that included Lincoln Logs and the Slinky. And it just takes you back. It places it so beautifully, really beautifully written. Um, Well, Margalit, thank you so much. I'm going to ask you if you'll stay for one more... We ended the show by taking questions from the audience. Um, First of all, this was fascinating. Thank you both. So I was certainly aware of the fact that 
obits for famous people are written in advance, but is there some sort of pattern that gets followed? Um, Mo, you mentioned her earlier. Cardi B gets famous. Do they at the New York Times then decide we need to have something on file about her? Or do you wait until someone is of a certain age? Well, the, the rather dark joke in open departments across America is that if you're a rocker, you're going to be dead at 27 from an OD or a plane crash, sadly. <laughs> but since our departments are small, newsroom budgets are shrinking by the minute, we have the resources only to do people whom an actuary would also be looking at. So uh, ex uh, seriously, we, there's no hard and fast rule. If we hear someone is ill, then of course we will drop everything and start in advance. But under normal circumstances, people have long lives now. Uh, so we wouldn't look at anyone much under 80 unless there were exigent things going on. Uh, hi. Um, well, I'm curious whether you'd want to write your own or, or you, there's somebody that you chose to, ha to have write yours. Isn't that like a doctor treating how a family member? <laughs> how the hell old do you think I am? <laughs> I guess I would think that would be something, you know, unlike maybe others that you would, you know, you would think about. Way to go, Beth. I think at this moment I'm more likely to commit homicide than... <laughs> we, this will push the podcast back to number one. <laughs> because we wanted it to be true crime. That's where it's all at. I would love if you wrote my obit. <laughs> I already have the headline selected. It's just going to say, no mo. <laughs> that is so good. I will oblige you right now. Thank you to Margalit Fox so much. Oh, I, right, I forgot. I forgot. Not that this is the reason I'm here, but there's also a Mobituaries book. Everything from the death of dragons to the death of different diagnoses. People used to believe the dragons were real until 1735, and some guy came along and said, no, they're made up. And then everyone went, holy crap, we thought dragons were real. <laughs> Sorry, I should have issued a spoiler alert for Game of Thrones fans on that one. So don't, don't let your Game of Thrones fans read that chapter. I hope that you will get the book or read someone else's copy and most of all, enjoy it and continue listening to the podcast. And thank you all for being part of this first Mobituaries Live! Next time on Mobituaries, Anna Mae Wong, Hollywood's first Chinese-American superstar. She was a true pioneer in that she couldn't look to anyone and say, I want to be like this person. She really had to uh, forge her own path. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Mobituary. May I ask you to please rate and review our podcast? You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Moraka. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Megan Marcus, Harry Wood, Christopher Kettner, and me, Moraka. 
It was edited by Harry Wood and engineered by Dan DeZula. Indispensable support from Christina Tompkins, Genia Stineski, Richard Rohrer, Don Epstein, and everyone at CBS News Radio. Special thanks to Jim Norton at the Asbury Park House of Independence and Robert Martineau at the Fairfield Theater Company for their hospitality and technical support. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom mobituaries couldn't live. Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries the Podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries the Book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line, sports teams that threw in the towel for good, forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.